This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. It's a truism that information isn't enough to change behavior. Yeah, we know what to do, but of course, that doesn't stop us from doing other things. We know we should exercise. We know we should eat a certain way. We know we should get to bed at a certain time. And yet we sabotage ourselves at every turn. And there's an entire library of books just dedicated to this gap between knowing what to do and actually doing it. And a lot of it is complicated, of course. A lot of it is about self-sabotage, old patterns, self-esteem. But when something comes down to, I got to have this piece of chocolate, or I got to smoke this cigarette, there's something else going on. And it's not all in our heads. And some of it, it turns out, is in the very cells of our body in a way that's pretty inaccessible to us if we're trying to understand ourselves psychologically and rationally. And that's where today's guest comes in. Dr. Carrie Saunders wears a lot of hats. The one we're interested in today is where she's a practicing clinical psychologist who helps people overcome food cravings and addictions so they can become healthy. And she helps her clients reverse disease processes like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, irritable bowel syndrome, and obesity. She's an ambassador for a healthy plant-based lifestyle. She is president of the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group out of Michigan, and she is a fascinating person. And in this conversation, we really explore the hidden part of the iceberg, when it comes to our behaviors around food and other addictive substances. So without further ado, Dr. Carrie Saunders, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. So we're going to talk today about cravings and addictions. I'm not sure I understand the difference. I am sure that I will by the time we're done talking. But first, I'd love for you to just, you know, tell us a little bit of a story about how you came to be where you are. Did you always want to talk about nutrition? Were you interested in health? Or how did that come about? Well, we've got to go all the way back to my childhood, actually. I had a very severe dairy allergy. And because of that, I grew up as a child kind of navigating uh, different, you know, foods from the other kids and so on. And I became fascinated by how some foods affect others differently than they affected me. So, um because of that, I wove that into my bachelor's degree and my master's degree and my Ph.D. about how foods affect people and health choices affect people and ended up a psychologist, actually. I did that actively for 13 years. And as a psychologist, I had a couple different specialties. One of them was working with substance dependence and substance abuse. And it was very interesting to me how when I would hear an addict describing their affinity for either cocaine, which of course would be a stimulant, or alcohol, which would be a sedative, I would hear very similar comments about foods. So, for example, people say things like, I can't live without my coffee, I can't live without my cheese. <laughs> and so, as I was writing my doctoral dissertation, um, I... I chose a topic about how food affects the body. And uh, so that book is now out. It's called The Vegan Diet as Chronic Disease Prevention. And then my next book will be out soon, and that is how food affects the brain and neurotransmitters. So it was kind of a long, lifelong process. In the, in the middle of that, I became vegan. I've been vegan since 1996. And uh, now, as a part of my practice, I work with individuals who are trying to optimize their nutritional intake and either fight disease, reverse disease, or just achieve optimal health. Maybe they're an athlete or, you know, a busy mom, and they just want to feel great all the time. So, so my client base is pretty varied. I'm curious about your dairy allergy. How old were you when that was discovered? Because it, se it seems like, you know, it's one of the things that people have a hard time even looking for, thinking to look for is, 
you know, the all-American food, milk, that it could possibly be harmful? What was, what's the story behind that? Well, well, I kid now. Uh, yes, cow's milk is the perfect food, only if you're a baby calf. Um, but as a human, of course, it, we're the only species that never weans, and we're certainly the only species that goes from our own human mother's breast milk to other animals. So it's kind of curious if you imagine that. Um, but I was actually an infant, and uh, my mom said that I was very sick the first couple weeks of life, and she had taken me to three, maybe four physicians in that couple of weeks trying to find out what was wrong. Apparently, I just cried continuously. I had, you know, severe colic, and um, so by the time we got to the fourth physician, it was an older gentleman. I wish I knew his name because I literally owe him my life. Uh, he told my mom, your your baby is so allergic to dairy, um, I'll be surprised if she lives through the night if you do not remove that from her diet. And my mom said that within about a day, the crying stopped instantly, and apparently I had cried pretty much the entire first two weeks of my life. And um, then as a child, as I got older, if I accidentally ate dairy, you know, maybe at school or in, you know, at something at a party or whatever, I would get sick again instantly. So I'm one of those folks who was kind of blessed with a, an allergy that kept me away from a troublemaker my whole life. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it seems like you have a really uh, a cellular knowing that food affects our bodies in a way that most of us without that kind of allergy kind of have to take on faith a lot of the time, like we're not paying attention to did this sugary, you know, treat make me feel worse later? Or did the meat I ate kind of bloat me or, or get me foggy? We, we kind of, you know, read books about nutrition and health. And we think, well, that's theoretical. But it sounds like you had a, a real clear uh, feedback loop. Oh, yeah, there was no denying that. And unfortunately, I think that most of us living in America are so used to self-medicating. And what I mean by that is it's normal to open up a, a medicine cabinet, for example, in a typical American bathroom and see, you know, all kinds of, you know, Pepto-Bismol and Maalox and acid reflux medications and um, uppers and downers of over-the-counter types. And the idea here is that people are so sick and tired, they don't even realize they're sick and tired. And I don't mean that, you know, to be judgmental in any way. I think it's a very, very sad fact. We're so used to, to self-medicating that we're not taking a step back and saying, why do I need all of that stuff? Hmm. So I'm guessing that there's a relationship between our cravings and our addictions and the, that impulse to self-medicate, that we don't just do it with OTCs, but we do it with, with food as well. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, in, a, in, a, in a little bit, I'd like to get into the different types of neurotransmitters that are, that are involved in our cravings and our addictions. Um, but there is a difference, and I want to make sure that we cover that first. A craving has nothing to do with hunger. So I could eat a complete dinner, for example, but I might still be craving a piece of chocolate or a cup of coffee. There's, there's this lingering crave that's really not about being hungry. Mm. And we find when we study cravings in humans, the most common time frame is late afternoon. Um, 2 to 4 p.m. seems to be the hot button. And interestingly, in our culture, women will pretty freely admit to a craving but men will actually use the term hunger instead. And, and there are gender differences even with our cravings. For example, women will tend to crave um, sugars or chocolates and say, well, you know, I'm bored or I'm stressed or the advertisement made me do it. And then men will usually crave fattier foods like steak and pizza and just kind of use, use the word hunger. But I think it's more of a societal difference that men don't hone in on that actual craving. But then when we cross that line into addiction, um, this is when the neurotransmitters 
and the receptor sites at the neuron level have actually made a physiological change. And if I can just take a minute to explain that, if you could have, yeah, if you could have your listeners kind of hold up their palms out in front of them as if they're holding a box, and imagine that between the fingers, kind of at the webbing of the hand, are receptor sites. And so these chemicals that we call neurotransmitters, the chemicals actually hook in to those areas between the fingers, and that would be like a neuron. Your whole hand would be a neuron, and then the the neurotransmitters would be the chemicals that hook up in between your fingers. Normally, let's just say for math's sake that a non-craving brain imbalance would have three receptor sites there, and it would be allowing three neurochemicals that your brain makes to hook up into those receptor sites. So once that neuron's receptor sites are full, so we've got those three receptor sites full, that neuron will fire and send along a message of things like contentment or messages to, you know, inhale or exhale or blink or whatever. But that neuron will only fire when those receptor sites are full. So now, if we're looking at what happens in a substance-dependent state or an addiction state, the brain actually makes extra receptor sites to take in these new external chemicals we're adding in. So it could be caffeine, it could be heroin, it could be cocaine, um, and it also could be components from food. And I'm sure your listeners are already aware, two of the most addictive foods we have are dairy products and wheat products. And the reason for that is dairy has a protein called casein, which will convert to casomorphine. So notice the word morphine, that's an opiate. And then wheat has a chemical called gluteomorphine or gliadomorphine. And again, it's an opiate. So we really do have an opiate-like or a pain-killing type reaction to these opiate foods. So let's stick with caffeine because it's a really nice, clean example to use with most people. Let's say I'm a caffeine addict, I have my coffee every day, but then I go to sleep at night and those receptor sites get all detoxed out and now they're empty when I wake up in the morning and three of them were natural and my brain will make three chemicals to fill up those three neurotransmitter receptor sites. But I also have these extra receptor sites that were made to take in my caffeine. Well, this neuron's getting a little agitated, and it's going to cause cravings and headaches for me because I'm sitting there empty until I add in more caffeine. So this craving process, waiting for more of that external chemical, is what people are dealing with when they're looking at things like stimulants, like caffeines and sugars, and opiates like wheat and dairy, and sedatives like alcohol. It's literally an empty receptor site waiting to be fed. <laughs> so the good news is there's a, there is a time frame when these extra receptor sites will die off. It varies a little bit for the individual, the type of substance they use, how much they use, and how often they use the substance. But we can take, for example, nicotine. Most non-smokers will tell you that first three days that I quit smoking were the worst. And what we find out now is the nicotine receptor site, specifically, takes about 72 hours to start to die off. So it kind of identically matches when most people would say that worst craving time period was, about three days. So these neurotransmitter, these extra receptor sites, they... Mm -hmm. Uh, are they caused by ingesting the substance before we get addicted to it? And, and you know, it's like, why would, why, would, um, why would we be susceptible to dairy? So wheat, I can sort of understand, you know, it's been a grain that we humans have been consuming for a long time in, in, in some form or another. It's been, you know, a staple for many civilizations. It gives us calories. But dairy... I mean, there's there's pretty strong scientific evidence that dairy, you know, certainly cow's dairy, non-human dairy, and beyond weaning age, is like terrible for us. Why why do you suppose we would have this um, 
predilection for addiction to it? Well, re- let's get back to that first protein, um, the casein will convert to casomorphine. So here's where nature really did us a favor, and we just kind of messed it up by switching species. species. The natural human breast milk would have about 2.7 grams per liter of casein, whereas cow milk has 26 grams per liter of casein. And by the time you manipulate that cow's milk liquid into cheese or ice cream, we've got to multiply it by about 10. So a human receptor site would be designed to uh, to feel an opiate rush or a little bit of calming effect, if you will, a, a pain-killing effect during breastfeeding from the mother. You know, eating would be pleasurable. It kind of propagates the species for the baby to want to eat. Um, but what we've got is a super high dose when we switch over to cow's milk. So we're getting 10 to 100 times the amount of casomorphine uh, tapping on our receptor site than we would have in human breast milk. <laughs> wow. So, so that's like I'm imagining like this conversation, like this committee, this creation committee. And someone says, hey, I've got this great idea to propagate the human species. We'll, we'll make breast milk the sort of like mildly euphoric, if you reduce a little right. pain. And then someone else says, yeah, but what, what if they switch, you know, what if they switch species and everyone else laughs at them and says, come on, that would never happen. Right, right. And, and it is noteworthy. All mammal milk has casein in it, all mammal milk. And so it just varies on amount between the species. Hmm. Um. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that the, the amount, you know, the, with the kind you have, when you start, the amount, maybe some emotional factors connected to it, like if it's a comfort food, if, it, if, you have, if it's like a guilty pleasure, you know, if, um, you know, you had, you went out for ice cream with your mom after you had a fight with your dad or something, that that could all contribute to it. But you know, what's, what's the relationship between nature and nurture? Here are there people who are just genetically predisposed to addiction, like one lick of ice cream and they're hooked, or is it is it all pretty much um, experience and environmental? Oh, that's an excellent question. It's a perfect mix, and it varies between individuals. So, for example, if you've got you know three kids who try a cigarette or a beer. Um, you know, chances are one would say, oh, that's terrible and never try it again. Another person would kind of become instantly addicted. And then that third person could end up what we would say maybe a, a social smoker, where when they're in a certain context, a certain bars with certain people in a certain environment or mood, then they would want to have a cigarette. But other than that, it's really not that big of a deal for them. So in, in fact, even when we look at diabetics now, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine is doing brilliant genomic research or nutrigenomic research, meaning looking at the genetic differences that humans have and how nutrition can play a role in those gen- genetic differences. And with diabetics specifically, they're finding out if they have a certain SNP called DRD2. If they're positive, they're a diabetic that will have very serious food cravings, even with the knowledge that these foods might push their disease towards things like amputation and more medication and heart problems and so on. Whereas if a diabetic is DRD2 negative, they will not experience these cravings. And in fact, once a physician says, look, you need to watch these certain foods or your diabetes is going to progress, the DRD2 negative folks can say, okay, and they really do not struggle with cravings. So we do know there are these psychological context issues, as you mentioned, um, but there are also physiological differences, and then there are these genetic setup differences. So it's going to vary from individual to individual, and the science is probably in infancy or toddler stage because, for example, uh, out, out in the public media, you might hear people speaking about dopamine, for example, or serotonin when it comes to addiction. 
But we already know of over a thousand neurotransmitters in the human brain. So we're just scratching the surface on how we actually work and how we actually function related to foods and and uh, drugs and over-the-counter drugs and so on. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear you say that because one of the things that I've become aware of in the last several months is the the poverty of the neurotransmitter theory of mental illness, that how little evidence there is that you can fix someone with depression or schizophrenia or anxiety by giving them a pill that blocks serotonin reuptake or uh, stimulates more dopamine reception. It's just, it seems like, you know, like taking your car to the mechanic and the mechanic is wearing a blindfold and has a, uh, you know, a jackhammer. And they're just, you, oh. know, you just open the hood and then they're just going to like attack things and, and the theory that, that that's going to help things get better. Is, is that kind of what you mean by, you know, the, the science is in its infancy or toddlerhood? Oh, absolutely. And I certainly, you know, don't mean it to point fingers at any certain type of treatment. But what I can tell you is medicine is now at a point where they're moving toward the integrated medical model, meaning that we do have all that traditional stuff, you know, certain medications and, and procedures and surgeries can save a life. But we also know that we have other disciplines to tap from now, including, you know, more Eastern philosophies of medicine or Asian philosophies, certainly the preventive and functional medicine genre where we're looking at lifestyle factors as pretty much number one impact on disease promotion or optimal health promotion. But we're also now only getting access to the human genome since 1998. I mean, we're still learning more literally at the speed of light every single day about how different, uh, different aspects of what makes you different from me and how we're going to navigate the environment because of those genetic differences. So it's just so amazingly beautiful and complicated. And what we thought we knew about manipulating neurotransmitters, we're realizing there's a lot more to the story. There are new labs, however. For example, um, neuroscience has uh, testing panels where they can look at urine, blood, and saliva taken from one individual, usually over two- or three-day period, and look at the metabolites of several different neurotransmitters at once and, and kind of monitoring how they move in that individual over a 24-hour uh, time period. So, for example, um, I had a client I was working with who had severe anxiety every evening. And when we finally did the neurotransmitter panel with him, we were looking at norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, cortisol, and so on. Sure enough, every single night, this guy's cortisol would spike up at 8 p.m. every night. And cortisol normally should spike in the morning to help us kind of wake up. But when you have a high cortisol at night, you will feel anxiety, panic disorders, you know, a, a sense that things are just not right. So by having these labs that are much more advanced, we can better target nutritional interventions and medication interventions to that individual. So how do we know? There's certain, you know, there's certain substances that I think you and I certainly would agree everyone should avoid, you know, like dairy, cow's milk. Like there's no reason right. any, any of us should be having any of that stuff. So that's an, that's an easy call. But so the other day, I, I came across an article in the New York Times by a health journalist um, whom I actually have a, 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 some respect for, which is very unusual for, for me in the New York Times. Uh, Aaron Carroll um, does a pretty good job uh, summarizing research, and he had a, uh, an article about caffeine and basically saying that coffee is one of the foods that has been shown across the board to be most protective. Now, I, and I never had coffee in my life. Um, you know, I maybe had a couple of like coffee ice creams when I was a kid, and I didn't like them. But I'm not a coffee drinker. I never drink coffee. 
And I was told, you know, it would stunt my growth. It would be bad for you. So when someone reads that, like, how do how would I know if I could handle the benefits of coffee or I would become an addict? Well, first of all, we want to follow the money on the original research there. It might have been put out by the coffee industry because a lot of times what we'll see is it's a component of the food that is actually protective. So, for example, perhaps it's something that's in the coffee bean. It might be the caffeine itself. And then again, looking, zooming out and looking at the whole picture, it may, in fact, and I've read some of that myself, be helpful in preventing, for example, dementia or some forms of memory loss, but it also might be a stress inducer for the other individuals and mimic an anxiety or, or a fight-or-flight response, which actually kind of you know, burns your wick too fast, and it's very hard on your adrenal glands and, and your epinephrine and adrenaline stores in the brain. So first I'd want to know who kind of funded that study and, and how they concluded that. But it is noteworthy that caffeine itself is now listed as a controlled su substance with the Olympic Committee. So we know that it has enough of an effect on the body and on performance that it's being called a controlled substance. So I'd want to zoom out, like I said, and also if it is just about the caffeine, then the next question becomes the amount, how much for each individual would be the right amount, and at what point do we cross into dependence? So my concern as a practitioner when I'm looking at someone who does a lot of stimulants, so for example, caffeine, coffee, tea, sugars, uh, some individuals use diet pills, uh, some individuals abuse thyroid medication, when they're doing any of these stimulant um, activities, really what I believe is going on at the cell level is more of a cell starvation where the cell is so hungry for real nutrition, it kind of just goes to whatever would be a quick fuel source, a cheap fuel source, what will get me through the next 20 minutes. So anytime I've got someone who's craving these stimulant foods, I take a step back. I'll usually add in some electrolyte foods to help the cells get properly nourished, and then see where their cravings are. And I really have not had individuals over the last few years who, once they're properly nourished, have those cravings for stimulant foods any longer because the cells are properly nourished, the mitochondria within the cells are fed and able to do the work of the day. So I'm, I'm hearing you being reasonably skeptical about the, the coffee-caffeine research. And, um, you know, I, have, I haven't gone into it in enough detail to know, you know, how many studies, what the, what the total weight of evidence is, how much to give to each of them. But I'm guessing that there are foods that are commonly addictive and others that are not. Like, I've never heard anyone like jonesing for asparagus, for, 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 for example. Is, is, is the fact that, that a food is a common um, addictive substance, does that automatically like warn us in some way uh, to be careful with it? It most certainly does. In fact, there are certain buzzwords. You know, for example, if I walked into a room and I said, oh, I need a coffee, people in the room would kind of get that. They've heard that. They maybe can relate to that. They understand caffeine addiction and withdrawal. But if I walked into a room, as you said, and I said, oh, my God, I need some asparagus or I need a lemonade, people would kind of look at me kind of funny, like, that's weird. You know, you're just strange. So we do, we do kind of identify with uh, basically four or five groups, you know, groupings, I should say. Um, so we do have the stimulant type of cravings, as I just covered, um, people who will crave fat especially at night, for example, going home and wanting, you know, chips and salsa or potato chips or pizza, anything that would be fatty, um, avocado, guacamole. A lot of times these folks are kind of self-medicating an anxiety from the day. You know, maybe they have a stressful job or a situation that they're not really problem-solving. They're just trying to self-medicate and sedate a little bit of that. We see this in American holidays all the time, you know, maybe 
you know, some dysfunctional family gets together and what they do is eat themselves into a fatty, sedated oblivion and then fall asleep around the TV. So, 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 fats, so fats tend to be sedative? Absolutely. Yep. They slow everything down, including our thinking. I'm, I'm just jotting down the, the phrase fatty, sedated oblivion. So I'm, I'm thinking of using that on my next invitation to a family <laughs> gathering. <laughs> so then we also have our salt cravers, um, you know, salty foods, again, maybe with the chips, um, pretzels, this kind of thing. Um, and that usually is an electrolyte imbalance, um, sometimes increasing the fiber of the diet and making sure they're getting a good electrolyte balance in the diet, which, uh, by the way, we also have combo cravers, a combination craver. So you might be salt sugar. So pop and chips at the same time. Mm. Um, or those, uh, by, those salt color co covered chocolate almonds can, can handle all three, right? Oh, there you go. You have your sugar, salt, and fat plus caffeine. So that's, that's quite a combo. <laughs> <laughs> so in this sense, by increasing electrolytic-rich foods. So, for, for example, celery is a nice natural sodium. In fact, that's what I use in my soups as a salt. I'll use, I'll use celery. Um, cucumbers, potatoes, oranges, bananas, grapes, and berries, all of these are high in either magnesium, sodium, or potassium. So it sounds a little bit like what you'd get in a hospital IV, and these are electrolytically rich foods. So once we get some of these whole foods back into the diet, um, usually the sugar-salt combo goes away and some of the salt cravings go away. But um, it's interesting you did meet, you know, mention the chocolate. Um, chocolate actually has about 50 identified different compounds in it. Um, for example, in chocolate, we know that we have serotonin, tyramine, theobromine, uh, phenylethylamine. All of these are kind of uh, either cousins. Like, for example, phenylethylamine is a, a cousin of amphetamine. Um, we've got uh, N-acetylcholamines. Uh, I'm sorry, N-acetylethanolamines. And N-acetylethanolamines are cousins of cannabis or marijuana. So chocolate literally is like a big party in the brain. It's tapping on many different receptors. And the good news for us as, as plant-based eaters is that the dark chocolate without the milk in it will have more of these neurotransmitter-rich compounds. It has more magnesium in it. Because by the time you add in milk or waxy substances, like in many of the American versions of chocolate, We've diluted any of the benefits and any of the receptor-like uh, activity because we've got so much fat and wax added in. Uh, so so I, I hope I hear you saying that uh, my breakfast smoothie that I, I sweeten with, you know, dates and banana and throw in some raw cacao powder or cocoa nibs is okay? <laughs> it sounds wonderful. Just add in some, you know, add in a little bit of ice. You don't want to get too high on the sugar. But it sounds wonderful. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> so, and I have to say, as a, um, a, a linguist, to some extent, I heard that you said theobromides, which I, I think is Greek for uh, gift of the gods. I think that yes, was... it is. So, uh, so good. So we, we don't have to give most, I guess, most, would you say most of us don't, are there, don't have to give up chocolate? Are there people who should, who simply can't handle it in any amount? Yeah, you know, um, when you look at the allergic spectrum, so you have your sensitivities to food, hypersensitivities, and then allergies, which there are five different types of allergic reactions in the human body. People fall along that spectrum for many different types of foods. So we do have people who are literally allergic to chocolate. You know, they might have breakouts from it or whatnot. Now, it is a little bit more of a complicated picture for someone like myself helping navigate a client through allergies. Um, even with really good blood testing for allergies, um, what we're looking at is, is this person reacting to the genetically modified version of the food, uh, pesticide or an herbicide that's on the food, 
a mold that might be growing on the food, like some of the peanut allergies are actually this mold that grows on the peanut called um, aflatoxin. So we're not exactly sure sometimes what component of the food the person's allergic to, but we do know that in any case, if you're having a reaction, a stomach ache, a skin rash, a headache, um, feeling nauseous, you know, any of these signs that your body is trying to reject the food, absolutely please avoid that food. So um, there's a lot we could talk about, and I know I, I promised you half an hour because you have a really busy rest of the day and a lot of travels, but I'd like to leave people with a sense of empowerment. So, and I coach a lot of people and help a lot of people, um, you know, adopt plant-based diets. And honestly, it's not that difficult to explain to someone how to adopt a plant-based diet. It's not hard to show them some cookbooks. It's not hard to show them some recipes, but where people really get stuck is 8 p.m., I want something, you know, I want that dairy, I want that fat, right? So, so it's not the knowledge, it's those vulnerable moments that, that, that get us stuck. And I think if we don't understand that there's, you know, these neurotransmitters and that there's a physiology behind it, we tend to beat ourselves up and just say, I'm weak, I have no self-will, I have no discipline, I must not care about myself, I must be self-loathing. With, so with this information that you're sharing, I think people can relax a little bit and say, okay, so I'm up against something big. But now what do we do? How do we take the first steps to, you know, and maybe you know, go on that whole journey to uh, become free of these cravings and addictions? Oh, excellent question. Well, first, let me point you to one of my favorite books. Um, Dr. Neil Barnard, the founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, has a nice book called uh, Breaking the Food Seduction. And um, I helped him a little bit with the chapter four, which was about uh, cow's milk and, and that casomorphine issue. There are a few of us here in the United States that are just absolutely fascinated with that whole issue. But Breaking the Food Seduction is a fabulous book. Um, secondly, there are some nutrients we can ensure are in our diet that will help the body bounce out of these cravings. Remember earlier, my experience has been with individuals that when they're having these cravings for stimulant foods, salt, sugars, fats, underneath all of that is a cell starvation or a cell malnutrition state. So electrolytes I mentioned, I mentioned the electrolytic foods, um, to make sure that they're, they're getting those in their diet. Berries are excellent, by the way. Making sure that they're getting sufficient omega-3s, and certainly I'm not talking about fish or fish oil. I think they're highly contaminated, generally speaking. They're certainly not vegan, um, and we've contaminated our waters with so much stuff. But in the omega-3s um, in the plant kingdom, we can look at purslane, which is an excellent, almost like a sprout that you could put on a salad or a sandwich. Fabulously high in omega threes. Does, doesn't that just doesn't that sort of purslane sort of like grow wild in people's lawns? It certainly does. <laughs> so, yep, so we, and, we, don't and actually, have, we don't have to uh, pay, pay for it at Whole Foods. <laughs> no, as long as you're not spraying horrible chemicals on it, um, purslane is fabulous. In fact, while South American cultures call it portulaca, you might find it under that name as well. But, um, you know, hemp seeds, chia seeds, ground flax seeds, English walnuts, um, sunflower seeds, most of your greens also have moderate amounts of omega-3s, but those are the powerhouses I, I mentioned earlier. Making sure you've got sufficient omega-3, um, making sure you've got enough B vitamins in your diet, and and that which, the water. Which, which vitamins? B vitamins. B, B for boy. B is in boy, yeah, okay. absolutely. Our water soluble B vitamins. When you're under stress, they're usually the first class of vitamins to leave the body. Uh, again, water soluble, we tend to urinate them out. Um, and the B vitamins are really high in the legumes, beans, peas, lentils, and berries. Um, B vitamins help us handle stress, but they also nourish us at literally at the cell level. So by making sure we've got those items in our daily diet um, and managing other effects like 
paying attention to the context and the cues. For example, if I know every time I go to a certain restaurant with certain friends, I'm going to load up on desserts and fatty foods, maybe next time we'll suggest a different restaurant to be at with those friends. So I'm going to take control over some of those contexts and cues. I'm also going to make sure that uh, that I'm dealing with whatever stress it is in my life that's making me crave things like wine or fats at night. So it really is about using the, the knowledge as power so that you take back control. You realize that, yes, it's physiology that's making you crave it, but it's literally just a matter of time before you take back control and those extra receptor sites can die off. And that's usually 72 hours up to two weeks is the longest I've ever heard, even in the research. But usually, if you can get about three to four days out, you're past the rough patch. And just make sure you're treating yourself properly and, and nourishing yourself so that they're not hungry and asking for, for these cheap fuel sources. Uh, so <laughs> there, there is a, um, an addiction model that's very popular in this country, sort of the Alcoholics Anonymous model, which says that once an addict, always an addict, that you're always in recovery. Um, but I'm hearing you say that, that our neurotransmitters can change, that we can nourish our cells, we can stop uh, starving them, and that we can actually change. Do you, do you find that people can get to the point where that not only are they, have they conquered their addictions and cravings, but that they've conquered their psychology around it, that it's simply not a big deal? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm a huge fan of the 12-step programs. And interestingly enough, the very first page of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the author of the book identifies his impression of alcoholism as an allergy to alcohol or to the grain or whatever that the alcohol was made from. And there, maybe you and I can have another talk another time about what's called allergic addiction, where you actually are craving things you're allergic to. Hmm. There's a secondary response. There's a secondary endorphin rush once the body goes into an allergic reaction. So, so it's going to depend on the individual whether they get to a point where, for example, they can have a piece of chocolate once in a while and it's not that big of a deal versus someone who it is an instant trigger for them because they have the genetics and or the physiology for that addiction. So, again, cravings can be, you know, there for many different reasons. But once you have a dependence where you need that certain substance for whatever reason, that is very dependent upon physiology and genetics. So there could be people who are labeling themselves as like food addicts, like they're, they're mm -hmm. susceptible. And it may just be based on one food that they've um, generalized to, like, I can't handle anything. I have to be really strict with myself the whole time. I need to, you know, make a plan, use a scale, uh, when it might just be a single food or a certain class of foods and that they'd be fine with others. Uh, yes, I'm going to say yes, generally speaking, but sometimes the very issue of having control um, or being controlling or having the illusion of control, sometimes the activity of control is addictive in itself. We actually know, for example, from codependency behaviors that controlling things or controlling people can trigger an endorphin reaction in the brain. So we have to be real careful dealing with individuals who, you know, have an identifiable uh, eating disorder, that we don't switch them from one control issue, for example, never eating at all or as little as possible, to controlling what foods they eat when, weighing and measuring and becoming obsessive about all of that. You really want to help that person develop a brain chemistry where they feel balanced and uh, can can navigate the psychology around their issues much better. So if somebody is listening to this and they go, you know what, I really want the freedom that I'm hearing about. You know, we're talking about health on one level, but another level we're talking about freedom and sanity. And if someone is really 
craving, if I could use that word, craving that freedom and sanity. And maybe they've never had it. They can't remember a day when they weren't being jerked around on a chain by their relationship with food. What do you recommend people do? You mentioned Neil Barnard's book, Breaking the Food Seduction. Do you have resources? Do you work with people if, if they're you know, ready to, to break free? I do. And I know a couple other people also working with food addiction. So I do telephone consults. But for example, John Pierre uh, works in Colorado and California. Um, Chef AJ also works with food addictions. Jeff Novick works with food addictions. He used to be the director of nutrition for the Pritikin Center down in Florida. So there's a handful of us out there that are really trying to reach out and empower people, exactly what you said. In fact, if we can borrow one more concept from the 12-step programs which are established, they say be very careful to halt, H-A-L-T. Never allow yourself to get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or too tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's actually quite brilliant when you break it down, but yet simple enough to remember. If you're finding yourself feeling overwhelmed because you're you're allowing yourself to be too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that will set you up for um, n- not a weakness in a big sense, but that weak moment, if you will. It'll set you up for a weak moment. And by avoiding those four conditions, it's very empowering, planning ahead, making sure that you're not too angry, make, you know, you're too hungry, you're not too lonely, you're not too tired. By planning ahead and Designing a life instead of allowing life to just kind of fall around you, actually design your life as much as possible, it really does help. I love that. I'd never, I'd never heard that before. That's, that's really useful. Well, so how can people find more of you? If they, if they have a website that they can visit? I do. My website is very simple, drfood, D-R-F-O-O-D dot org. And on my website, you'll find some more resources and also contact information. My phone number is on there. My email address is on there. Um, and I just now, it's, it, this announcement's being made public here first. <laughs> I just now took over the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group as president. And that website is pbnsg.org, Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group. So we will be loading content for a new website that goes live in about a week. Uh, the, new, the, the current website does have resources on it, but we will have a fabulous website up in about a week, and that is a nonprofit group here in Michigan. Awesome. And um, for, for people who are listening to this, uh, due to the glacial pace of my workflow, I'm certain that that website is live now if you want to go check it out. <laughs> so, Dr. Food... <laughs> Org. Dr. Carrie Saunders, thank you so much. This has been really illuminating. I love the, the scientific cutting edge. I love the, the, the humility about what we know and don't know. I love the compassion uh, for people who are struggling, and I love the way forward. So I, I really feel uh, enriched and empowered. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Howard, and thank you for all the work you do, too. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go. So uh, I, I'm a, I have it on tape that we can have another conversation about allergic addiction. So I'm going to take you up on that someday. So I'll say uh, so long for now and uh, be well. Sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Kerry Saunders. Here's my suggested action step for today. Write down the number one food that you have a complicated relationship with, if you do, if you have one. Otherwise, this is a purely academic and you might pass this on to someone else. But if you're one of the people who struggles with sweet, salty, fat, write down that one food and think about when do you feel like you need it? Is there a time of day? Is there an event? Is there a mood? Is there a trigger for it? And just bring that awareness into the coming week and see if anything starts to shift. And of course, you can always call 
Dr. Carrie Saunders, visit her website, drfood.org. That's D-R-F-O-O-D.org. If you want to help in uh, breaking that cycle. If you'd like to support the Plant Yourself podcast, I would welcome it. One of the most important things we're looking for is iTunes reviews. Um, Stars, but also write a few words about what you like about the podcast. That really helps us get out there and reach more people. I'm also launching a survey for listeners, and you can find it at plantyourself.com slash survey. Just a few questions, just to take a couple of minutes, and it'll help It'll help me figure out who we have on as a guest, what formats work best, lots of stuff like that. Um, Also, if you haven't yet signed up to get updated at plantyourself.com, there's a lot going on. I've kind of, I've been doing this podcast for, well, about two years, um, but I'm only figuring out kind of what my commercial contribution is, which is to say, how can I make money doing this stuff that I love rather than working another job and just doing this uh, catch-as-catch-can evenings, weekends, holidays. And you'll, you'll find out more at plantyourself.com if you go there. But if you sign up, you'll get an email with every once a week, just on Tuesdays, you'll get an email telling you about this week's podcast, um, some short article or video or tip or recipe or, or some other little goodie. And also, you'll get invited to ongoing series of wellness webinars, and if you're local to North Carolina, to actual live events, dinners, where I feed you and talk to you about nutrition, health, lifestyle, medical choices, stuff like that. Um, If you're in the area, if you're in the Chapel Hill area or want to drive to it, there's a free dinner on June 25th. That's Thursday evening. And you can find out more about that at plantyourself.com slash dinners. Um, this morning, I went out into the garden and I harvested two ripe blueberries and six almost ripe blackberries. Um, I got a large bag of my neighbor's snap peas that I can see his garden from, from my office window. So local, but uh, we didn't manage to grow them ourselves. We just opened up a chicken sanctuary in our in our back meadow. We have uh, six lovely old ladies who have stopped laying, and you know the the chicken industry is kind of a, a weird one. The pult the egg industry is is rather weird. It looks very sweet. Backyard chickens look very sweet, but the fact is that there's a lot of death and carnage around the edges. And there's a lot of farmers around here who have chickens who are, you know, grain-fed, free-range, humanely treated. But once they stop laying, what do you do with them? And so we're, we're starting to take in um, as, as many as we can. We, we may be able to get up to 30 or 50. We'll, we'll see. We'll take it slow and see. Uh, our motto of our chicken sanctuary is no soup for you. And other news in the garden, we are struggling with Bermuda grass invasions of the beds and flea beetles. We are enjoying a nice week of rain, which is really helping. We don't have to spend quite so much time watering. And I wish you a beautiful week of exactly the kind of weather you're looking for. And until the next episode, be well, my friends.